Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. G'day everybody, welcome back to the ESPN Footy Pod once again. My name's Matt Walsh, I'm joined by Jake Michaels and Champion Data's Christian Jolly. Another massive weekend of footy, there's more MRO and tribunal drama. The latter leaders were toppled and we're going to talk the importance of getting good looks at goal, the best performances in milestone games and a bunch more. Jake, might need to make this episode an hour and a half long the way things are looking on this run sheet, I'm telling you. Lead us off, something from the weekend you noticed. Straight into it, hey. Um, I think everyone noticed this, but it was uh, going right back to Friday night. Arthur Jones didn't have a disposal, didn't record a disposal. Now, I don't mm. want to stick the boots in because everyone seems to have done that. But something I noticed with his stat line is he had a turnover. So it's a question for Christian. How do you not dispose of the ball and have a turnover? So I haven't, I can't find Arthur Jones' one. I'll find out exactly what he did. But there'll be a number of ways it can happen. So if you drop a mark or drop a handball receive, which you clearly should have taken some effective handball to you and you drop it and the opposition picks it up, that'll be your turnover without a disposal. A free against will be another common one. You can have a free against where your team's in possession of the ball. You give away a free against. That's the turnover. Uh, so I'll have to find the Arthur Jones one. But yeah, very quite common that you can have a turnover without a disposal happening. Interesting stuff. 82 minutes of game time. So not like he was the sub or coming on late. Just uh, had a, one of those games. It just yeah. doesn't come near you, unfortunately. Christian, something from the weekend that took your fancy. Uh, yeah, probably took my fancy is a good way to put it. I liked, again, I sort of changed my tone after the, uh, post-match yesterday. I had something else prepared, which I'll go through in the games. But just the coaches' uh, post-match conferences, I like two things that were said in that. Simon Goodwin gave us a good rundown of why... Max Gorn started in the ruck after Brody Grundy had said all during the week that he wanted to be out there at the setabouts. And he basically said he wanted his captain to be the number one ruckman and he wanted to get the crowd involved at the six-minute mark or so when Brody come on, which almost worked. I mean, Collingwood got out to a fast start. Brody Grundy comes on. Within five or ten minutes, he has a shot at goal. You know, towards the end of the first quarter, he takes a mark and has a shot at goal that could have given him, um, you know, got him closer. So sort of the honesty of, of what he'd done. And also Craig McRae talking about how he'd rather lose by ten goals than die wondering and just giving you... Again, just listening to two coaches that are actually telling the fans and the supporters listening in something rather than just saying a whole bunch of words like a lot of coaches do. <laughs> two coaches, I think that can can happen when coaches aren't under pressure. I was just about to say yeah. that. I, th- I think it's a lot easier to be more frank yeah, and forthright. 100%. And it's kind of like Dimmer when Dimmer if when Michael the Tigers said were that, cruising. Would be saying, oh, what a cop out! <laughs> uh, when the Tigers were cruising, Dimmer yeah. was one of the the better um, performers. Chris, Chris yeah, Scott Chris for Scott, a long yeah. time has been quite honest and forthright, and it's because he's they're not under pressure. So I find that if your team's flying in in the, the post match presses, you're going to get a lot more. And this is why I think coaches in those positions get asked a lot more about things. So Chris Scott always gets asked about like MRO verdicts and all this kind of stuff and, and he'll give a long answer because he doesn't have to worry about a lot of stuff. So it makes yeah. a lot of sense. Uh, I'm going to go to the same game that you did, Jake. Yeah. And I'm going to go back to actually our podcast from last week, mm. I'm pretty sure, where we were lamenting that um, you could just about do anything. Scrag, pull a player down, infringe on the goal yes. line so long as the ball goes through for a goal. You could get away with it because the umpires will just say, well, it's being shepherded on the line. We want to see a goal. However, on Friday night, Cody Waitman, 20 out, snaps over his head. It's a bit of a wobbler, admittedly. Started a bit of a Tom Papley celebration as well. He was, he was off and running to the races. <laughs> uh, but the ball probably wasn't going to make it over the line without a bit of help. So Oscar Baker comes in and is pushing. Like It was a, pu- it was a push. Yep. And it's normally one of those things that the umpires would just sort of let go. But for the first time, I reckon this year... A free kick was paid on the goal line, despite the ball going through, quote-unquote, for a goal, uh, for for interference on the goal line. I haven't seen that. I don't think I've seen that this year. I don't think I've seen it in a few years, to be honest. And But I would say, I can understand people being annoyed by it because we don't see it and it's never paid. But would you be happy if that was paid every single time? Because I would. I think it should be. Yeah, Why is it not? A little what? bit. But one of the things that caught my ears is, I think while someone was complaining, the umpire said, no, it was a marking attempt. So the umpire has paid that free because he thought that was it who was going for the ball was yeah, it Finlay or something? was it, was a ability to he had a chance to mark it. I was thinking that shouldn't matter. You can't block a like whether the ball's going through for a goal or that player's going to mark it. Yeah. An illegal block should be an illegal block. But for the umpire, the reason he paid is because he in his mind the Port Adelaide player had a chance to mark it. So if the ball had sailed five meters further over and the and Baker yeah. had done the exact same thing, it, they would have said, "Well, you yeah. couldn't have marked the ball." According that that's to, yeah. that's silly. But yeah. but the block itself. The illegal, illegal off the ball block. Yeah, 
Attackers get away with far too much on the goal line, I feel. Uh, So champion data, we talked about blocks last week in Shepherds. The champion data already put down the block for the goal. You've influenced this Well, we would have. But personally, I said we need to be paying more blocks in marking contests because I thought they were creeping into the game. And I saw that one paid on on Thursday or Friday night it was. And I thought, oh no, what have I done? Because I didn't (laughs) didn't want those ones being paid. But uh, yeah, that again, would have been a block if the goal had been paid. All right, deep breath. Plenty to chat about, uh, Jake. Footy fans, and I'm pretty sure players as well are as confused as ever uh, after another week in which a number of similar and seemingly innocuous incidents were cited and in some cases not cited by the match review officer, Michael Christian. Mm. Uh, started on Thursday night. Dan Butler and, uh, and Nick Blakey were involved in a, a tackle in which Blakey's hit unfor- head unfortunately hit the turf. On first view, on 10th view, and I think I've seen it probably 35 times, I'm not sure what I'm seeing that's so bad about the tackle itself. However, he was handed uh, a one-match ban, and that's going to be challenged at the tribunal. Then there was the Ryan Mansell on James Aish uh, hit, sent straight to the tribunal as well. A bump, um, collision, head hit, shoulder. It's probably a little bit more. uh, You can understand where the MRO went with that. Then there was the James Sicily tackle. So that was on humor cluggage. There was this interesting sort of confluence of events where um, Brockman was was involved in the, in the contest as well. And so Sicily goes for this tackle on McCluggage. Brockman's there. And then there's these three players. The tackle happens. Momentum sort of goes whichever way it does. And McCluggage's head hits the turf. That gets sent straight to the tribunal, which uh, if you look at the, the way that the MRO's boxes laid out, that means that they expect there to be a penalty of at least three weeks. Uh, and then there was Zach Merritt on Alex Chincotta on Sunday night. Uh, similar looking tackle, I guess, to the uh, to the Dan ba- uh, the, the Baker one and the Butler one, my apologies. And, um, and he was let off. It just seems like it's been a bit of an inconsistent week and fans, players, clubs are as confused as ever as to what's going on and what's acceptable. And is it an MRO issue? Is the AFL trying to move too fast for these changes by, by by changing how we view these things too quickly and on the run in terms of what's acceptable and what's not in a contest? Because there's just a lot happening. And, and in the space of you look at round one when Cozzy Pickett went into um, Bailey Smith and mm. got two weeks for that, we're looking at James Sisley and he's potentially going to and probably going to get more. Well, he will. He'll get three. And I, look, I think it's as clear as day. I think this is the worst week the MROs had since it was introduced. Um, the, the the two decisions, I just cannot wrap my head around. And I think everyone tends to agree, which is very rare in, uh, in, in football, certainly with MRO tribunals sort of talk, is Dan Butler. I have no idea how he's been given a one-match suspension. Well, I do, because we know that there's such an emphasis on the result and the outcome as opposed to the tackle itself. But the way in which Butler tackled uh, Blakey from that sort of blind coming in sort of blind Blakey was a bit blindsided that was a textbook tackle in my opinion for, from the way in which he came where Blakey wouldn't have been able to see him yeah it, it's totally unfortunate that he that his head hit the the turf and he was he had concussion symptoms but this is this is a collision sport this is a tackling sport this is going to happen like from time to time you cannot just get rid of it completely and you can't punish every single instance of concussion with a suspension. If the technique is poor, you can. But you, of but course, if the, yeah, technique the technique is sound, which it was, so there was there was no second movement, there was no sling, there and I'm no... pretty sure that there's a still photo, and the vision obviously shows it in, in video mode as well, but there's a great still photo on Getty Images of Blakey's left arm being free yeah. in the tackle. So I just sort of struggle to understand why we're still punishing the outcome and not the intent. Yeah, and we've been saying this since day one of this podcast Five years now? Five years we've been doing this? Yeah, five years. Um, and we, we never know. We never know the reason why. And I and we've had inc- incidents over the last five or six years where, as I said, this has come up and we've sort of just said, why are we punishing the, the outcome um, rather, than, rather than the action? I think this one is the most significant in terms of... It, it, I think this could be a bit of a landmark moment that the AFL might look back on at the end of... Or at least I hope they do. Look back on at the end of the season and say... Because how how everyone is everyone is on the same page with this. I hope that they can look at it and say, this has to be our turning point for uh, looking at the action as opposed to the outcome. I, I haven't seen the video, but or well, DVD or whatever they send out. But I heard um, either last week or a fortnight ago they did send out a whole 
type of legal tackles. So not what can't you do. They sent to the clubs what can you do and what is a legal tackle. And hearing people sort of quoting that that have seen that video said the Dan Butler tackle was one of the examples of a tackle you can do. Yeah. So they've gone the AFL department or the AFL is trying to get the umpire department is trying to get onto the front foot and actually sort of sent out okay these are things that that are legal that we're going to allow to pay. Apparently there's a similar to the Dan Butler one that was in that video and now they're punishing it. So I feel like yeah I'm with you on the the Dan Butler one really does feel like a watershed type case in terms the whole competition should have almost got together to uh to appeal that that ban just to find out why is he getting a week, one week and what can players change to not get that one week in the future because at the moment no one knows mm. so is this an issue with the MRO not being well, a bit the MRO's about... following guidelines like yeah, at the yeah. end of the day the MRO is not just going out the there guidelines and... on, on the guidelines on the guidelines changing are, yeah and, and has gu- changed multiple times this season already yeah but the guidelines are wrong and and that's what's got to change the, the MRO you, people can criticize the MRO and the way it's being done but it's you know Michael Christens is just following what what we've set out but that is what's fundamentally wrong with the game. And then the James Sisley one, same thing. I, I understand that he um, he, res- he copped a one-week suspension uh, in that game against St. Kilda. But in determining the fact that he's sent straight to the tribunal and will be now given three weeks, that doesn't come into consideration. So the fact that this incident on its, on its, on its own um, seems to have warranted a three-week suspension is just ludicrous. Going back to Butler quickly, that was when I watched that live and the umpire blew his whistle. I think everyone thought I told him the ball. It's going to be a free kick to Butler. If that had been the case, if the umpire was just on a slightly different angle and calls that a free kick, does does he then still get suspended? Yeah, we've seen that before. We've seen, um, it might get the players wrong way. It was either Bryce Gibbs on Robbie Gray or Robbie Gray on Bryce Gibbs. Later tackle, sling tackle, got paid a free kick, kicked the goal. Two weeks. And then I got think. two weeks, yeah. uh, three days later. Mm. Uh so, know. interesting question for you, Jake. The AFL never actually replaced Brad Scott with a, a head of football um, when, when Brad was tapped on the shoulder for the Essendon gig. So, there's no... And, and, and if you remember last year... You're putting your hand up, eh? No, <laughs> couldn't pay me enough. Uh, he, he was kind of the PR arm of, of the AFL for a lot of these kind of things and, and was the, the link between the fans and the players in the AFL about decisions and, and interpretations and stuff like that. Does the fact that there's no one in that position hinder what, what the... the the confusion for fans and players uh, is. Uh, I think I I don't really think so. I mean, you you're su- a little bit surprised that they haven't really replaced that role, but I don't think that is the the real issue here. I think the issue at hand, like I've said, is the fact that the guidelines for determining what it, what deserves what is just flatly wrong at the moment, um, and that's what's got to be fixed up at the end of the year. And as I said, I hope that they look back on this as kind of that landmark moment that says we cannot keep. We've got to understand that this is always going to be a contact and collision sport. Yeah. We're going to have injuries. We're going to have concussions. That's the reality of it. If you don't like that, don't play the sport. Slinging, bad. Two moves, bad. Um, you know, reckless. I'm all for punishing things yeah. that deserve punishment. Yeah. Um, Would you say that um, Butler in particular had uh, had his opponents' like well-being in mind 100%. with the tackle? So it's not I, like... I, thought it was a very, I thought it was similar in a way to the... The one we saw a few weeks ago with Rory Laird and Lockie Neal, different tackle, but the same sort of thing. The way he kind of put him to the ground, it wasn't driving him in. It wasn't slinging. It yeah. was sort of that care of cautiously not wanting yeah. to have his head hit the deck. So he, he had duty of care. Yeah, because what we're now seeing is the the, op- the 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 fact that players know they can draw a free kick. So they the, the shoulder hits the ground first, and then their head sort of... Go, they sort of flicked their head to sort a, of draw that. Seen a few times where I thought you're putting yourself in danger there by yeah. trying to let your head hit the ground yeah. to get a free kick. Well, we're we're seeing aren't more and more that. of that. Yeah, that's that's uh, anyway, lot to talk about, and we will move on because um, we could talk. I think MRO, we could do a separate oh. bloody podcast on it every week. I reckon. Well, we talked off the top about the importance of getting good looks at goal. We've we've seen some teams this year really struggle in terms of nailing their chances in front of the big sticks. You look at West Coast and Carlton in particular. And then there are other teams that have taken their chances really well. Uh, we talked about expected scores on this podcast a fair bit, Christian, in terms of um, how many points you're supposed to be scoring from a certain point uh, and under certain amounts of pressure. And it can tell us a lot. And so what we've asked you to do this week is look at the teams that are getting the best and the worst looks at goal and how they're performing in front of the big sticks. Yep. So, yeah, using expected accuracy, basically, yeah, looking at the whole season and and where you're taking your shots from. And if you have a higher expected accuracy, you're taking easier shots. Um, If you have a lower expected accuracy, you're obviously taking harder shots. So 
things that make a shot easier, a set shot, so you're under no pressure or under very little pressure if you have a set shot or, on, or in general play under no pressure. You're kicking from the right side for that foot, so you're kicking you know, from the left side for right footer, so all those, all, all those are taken into account. What about the, the, your foot that you choose to kick it on? Does that get taken into consideration? So it does in terms of if you've used your left foot from a certain spot, you'll get an expected accuracy of left. You know, someone using their left foot mm. versus their right foot for that spot. It's not smart enough to go, okay, but that's his opposite yeah. foot. So it doesn't bring it down to go, okay, when you use your opposite foot from this, it's, it's just basically like when you kick it with your left foot under this pressure from this zone, this is the expected rate. So it does take into account kicking foot, just what if not you're your Rich dominant. McInnes and miss your foot? Well, yeah, exactly. There's a, there is a few times I've looked at it and gone, well, that won't actually be an expected score because he didn't kick it. We don't have anything to record as, a, as an expected score. So there, there's these funny ones like that. But yeah, looking at the teams that sort of generate uh, the, the best looks at goal this year and expected accuracy. And again, the, the numbers are sort of lowish, but Brisbane Lions are number one for expected accuracy. Their expected accuracy is 51%. So that's looking at all the shots they've taken and, the, and how their shots have resulted since 2010 across the competition. They're expected to be scoring at 51% accuracy, which, you know, it seems quite low to be at, at a at 50-50 rate for the top of the competition. But Fremantle's second, uh, so you get the second best looks at goal, 50.5%. Uh, and Gold Coast, the only other team above 50% at third. So, yeah, gee, that does seem low. I would have thought it'd be closer to 60 for the top teams at least. Yeah, so this is just looking at all shots. So again, when I start to break down different zones, so you look at within 30, and I think it goes up to about 64% of the expected yeah. accuracy. So this is looking at all shots. So again, go to the other end of the table. The lowest uh, expected accuracy, and I think we've spoken about in previous previous weeks, is Carlton at 44%. So they are taking the hardest shots of goal of any team, and I think that's got a lot to do with the midfield forward line connection and just not being able to hit easy targets and find easy One ball in the forward 50. Um, Adelaide is the second worst expected accuracy at 45.7% and West Coast is the third lowest expected accuracy at 47.1%. Sort of looking at where Carlton are 11th or 12th for shots taken at goal. So they've taken, you know, so outside the top eight for shots taken and they're taking really hard shots. We obviously know West Coast, they're last for shots at goal and they're like taking the third hardest shots at goal. So they're completely a basket case up forward. Whereas Adelaide, as I said, the second hardest shots at goal, but they're actually second for shots at goal per game. So they're, they're taking a lot of shots, but they're the ones that, as soon as they get it within 50, they've got license to shoot, I think. And I think I watch guys like Rankin, Rochelle, Walker, Fogarty. They're all, they're all great quite, and goal. they're quite confident from 40, 50 out on the boundary, wherever they are. So they're not trying to find that extra pass in their forward 50. Mm. At the moment, again, it's worked for them. So when you match them up to Carlton, they're getting you know, the same quality looks as Carlton but they're taking more of them and they're nailing more of them and therefore it's you know it's a feel good story Adelaide this year whereas Carlton's probably at the other end of the table that so passes the eye test completely as well mm. yeah so one of the interesting ones like so you're looking at within 30 meters only um, and again we we end up with some similar names of teams on top so within 30 meters um, expected accuracy you got Sydney Essendon Melbourne are sort of on top um, Brisbane is sort of high up there as well but if you look at the difference between Brisbane, and again, when I watch Brisbane sort of um, play, I feel like a lot of their easy goals are on the run out the back, whereas a lot of their marks and, and shots at Danaher and Hipwood are taking it from the boundary um, and, and, and much wider. So again, looking at within 30 um, and just looking at your ability to hit a, or sort of your quality of set shots from that um, stage. Mm. Brisbane is 17th for set shot quality from within 30 metres. So they've got an expected accuracy of about, uh, it's under 60%, I think about 58% from set shots within 30, which means when they're close to goal, they're very, very wide still hmm. uh, on the boundary. But they have the second ex ex highest expected accuracy of general play shots from within 30. So they're getting goals from the top of the square, Charlie Cameron, Cameron out the back. The run, so, yeah. so you look at that, and again, when I watch Brisbane and, and their forward line structure, it's like when they can get that big open forward line going, they're, they're hard to stop because they'll get goals from within 20, 30 or not. But if you have to force them to take marks and actually have a sort of slow play, they do get themselves into harder positions to take the shots. Well, they do feel like, I don't know if the numbers would say this, but they do feel like they get a high percentage of their goals from open, from general play as opposed to set shots. Yeah, they're, they're a high. They're sort of, I think, their fifth highest percentage of, um, or fifth lowest percentage of goals from set shots. Um, so they do have a lot more reliance on general play. But yeah, as I said, it's even the quality of, if if they're going to take a set shot, it's usually going to be from a harder spot. But mm. they're easier goals usually from on the run. Interesting stuff. Um, we'll have to keep tabs on that. I think uh, for the rest of the year and just sort of see which teams are are really good at getting to good spots and then nailing 
the shots that they have from those spots. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing that we were talking about, Jake, this week. So Taylor Walker, 250th game. Big milestone. Oh, big game. Uh, he had a big game personally. So 10 goals against a pretty dire opponent, admittedly. Do, do, you reckon he, do you reckon he looked at this at the start of the year and, and sort of thought, tell you what, my 250th is going to be against the Eagles. He said he had wanted 100 tickets. I mean... I reckon he was eyeing half of Broken Hill. Was he? He, he was eyeing <laughs> off at least eight for <laughs> since round two. I reckon. Uh, well, he delivered. So he kicked, he kicked the bag of ten. Uh, Crows won by hundred plus points, and it was a great day out for all involved at Adelaide Oval. Unless you're playing for West Coast, but obviously it would have ranked really highly in terms of rating points because you know kicking goals, being accurate, um, getting involved in the play, all that sort of stuff. So Christian, how does it rank? Firstly, in terms of games we've seen this season is it, is it one of the better games we've seen this season and then in terms of players that have played in milestone games surely that also ranks pretty well up there for ratings points in terms of games that have been played overall in, in milestone games yep so the four he finished with 40.5 rating points the fifth highest game ever so saying ever, ever. goes back to two, ever. so 2010 to 2023 rating points have been around so 13 14 years so fifth highest game on record um and the highest this year and i think there's only been two or three other games over 30 this year and he's got 40.5 just to sort of give you a comparison of how far ahead of everyone else so ratings loves goals um you know but obviously he took contested marks kicked some long-range goals and all that so i think he was uh number one for the game for meters gained as well so 630 meters gained so he was, he was kicking long goals uh, so yeah ratings ratings love that but i sort of 17 score involvement <laughs> There, there, there's 21 disposal. <laughs> yeah, so there's been, a, again, I looked at score involvements. There's been a few 21s and 20s, so I think he's in the top, you know, top five. But there's been a few guys have have had more score, score involvements across the game. But I was sort of looking at um, a couple of other milestone games that have happened recently as well. And it probably happened two or three weeks ago. I'm a big fan of Steel Sidebottom. Um, mm. I did oh, a lot of his junior footy as well. And just the way his milestone. day ended. So I had a look at that. And if you look at uh, 300th games, um, it was the worst it was the lowest rated 300th game we've ever covered and the second lowest rankings game. So again, rankings goes back to 1999. Did it come with an asterisk though because he was injured? Because he was injured. Yeah. So again, it was just, it, it's one of those ones that was, wasn't a badly played game. It was just like your value, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, your score, your contribution to the game wasn't quite as high and that was because of injury. So, and then the other one was on um, Thursday night. I, was, I sat there with my son on Thursday day. He, had, he was sick last week from school and they were running uh, Lance Franklin highlights all day long. So he was in buddy mood. He wanted to watch buddy uh, Thursday night and he just couldn't get a kick and it, you know the ball was sailing over his head and I thought he, he sort of struggled as well so we've done there's been 13 players play their 350th game uh, since we've been covering ratings and that was the lowest rated 350th game um, and and I think it was half as bad as anyone else. I think the next worst was yeah. David Mundy, who was also I think he was Washington a sub. Was but again, David Mundy was a sub for half the yeah. game. So that's he, right, he was he, too. Yeah, he didn't play the full Stiff. four quarters. Yeah. So a little bit of asterisk what next we, to David Mundy. What do we think of Buddy? Like, I'm not de- not not denying in any way that You're he's still him, a match winner. Winner. There's there's two players I've been thinking about recently, and again, it's because my son is into football and we're starting to collect footy cards and things like that. Nick Natanui, who. I know you'll love me bringing him up, but Nick Natanui and Lance Franklin at their prime, just you'll never see the way they moved and things like that. Towards the end of their career, they're so hard to watch because of what they were in their prime. And, and Natanui, we haven't even seen for 12 months, but when he comes back and Natanui plays, he's not going to be anything like Nick Natanui. So you almost want him to retire as a footy fan and, and as a selfish, you, you yeah. want him to retire so you only remember. The memories are there of watching pack marks. Watching Buddy know that he was 350th, know that he wanted to take control of the game, but just couldn't get near the ball, couldn't sort of outrun Nick Keller Wilkie anymore. It was it was tough to watch. It was sort of, that try was to explain true. to my son, he is a superstar. He's the greatest player in the game, but tonight, and, and I said to him, based on our ranking points, I think he finished 42nd in that. He was the 42nd best mm. player in that game. So. And, and, and that's not just a one-off. That's been more often the case this year um, than him having a match-winning sort of performance. I think he's only kicked 12 goals for the year. I don't know. I think he's... Uh, um, clearly, he's got uh, more yesterdays than tomorrow's in, in, in football. But I don't know. How long is he going to play? Is he going to play next year? Like, no. I, I, I tend to agree. I don't want him to selfishly I don't want him to go on for, for a long period of time where it sort of warps out what we think of him because he is without question one of the you know three best players of the last 25 years it's a great question um, whether you just keep going and, and then fall off the perch or if you decide to you know I mean he's got every right to keep going but it's more instead of 
fall. Where Sydney is now, I think compared to where we probably thought they'd be, considering they made the grand final last year, I mean, you raise the question: Do, do they drop him? Do, does he? Do, do they look to to bring in some some younger guys? I, I don't know. Oh, we've seen we see captains sometimes dropped as well. You look at like Tom Jonas from Port can't really get a game at the yeah, moment. I know, been, I know, I know. But captain Tom Jonas, but but he's just a different different stratosphere, right? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, any other milestone stats before we move on? Yeah, just a quick one. Jack Rewalt's um, been pretty good. So in his one hundredth game, he played against St Kilda and had an eight goal night, which was the I think it's the highest ranked one um, hundredth or highest rated one hundredth game we've got. Um, in the past few years, and then he did it again in his 300th game. He's also got the highest-rated 300th game on record, which I think he kicked five or six in that game as well. So his 200th wasn't as good, but his 100th and 300th have been right up there. So he loves a milestone. And a champion over a long time. Better than Nick? Yep. Yep. Uh, you asked this question pre-pod, and I said, I've still got Nick ahead, but it's a harder answer than uh, 12 months ago I would have had him For- Forget the question ahead. of who's had the better career because you people will look at premierships. Take that out of the equation. Who would you want for their career? Who whose production would you want if you said you can have this guy, different players, or this guy? So, yeah, I'm not saying they're, yeah. they're the exact, same, they're clearly not the same player. But what what are you taking? I think I'm taking I'm taking Jack. I've still got the work rate of Nick Rewalt. Again, Nick Rewalt changed the game. There's there's one stat that we've created, you know, champion data that we created based on Nick Rewalt, and that was lead marks. He, mm. he started taking so many of them that we created a Fine, new category. Yeah. But also that aerobic capacity of a big man. I think he did change the way. The way what we expect from a footballer and what we expect from a tall guy. Whereas Jack Rewalt's been a great full forward. I think Nick Rewalt was a revolutionary sort of athlete and player. Uh, let us know what you think at Footy Tips if you agree with Jake or if you agree <laughs> with Christian. Uh, listener Pop? questions. You can, Pop? speaking of uh, Twitter, you can get those into us anytime. At Footy Tips on Twitter is where you'll find Who us. What do you think? You didn't answer that. Uh, I think I'm taking Jack, yeah. 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 Uh, from G on Twitter Is it possible to score a goal without an inside 50? Just say that Team A clears the opening bounce, retreats inside their own 50, and then turns it over for a goal. Is that one goal on zero entries? Or does, team, <laughs> or does Team B get an inside 50 just by possessing it inside their forward half? Correct. Inside their forward arc? Yep. So inside 50 is basically the stat that counts when your team has the first opportunity to sort of create, to impact play in the forward 50. So you're right. That team going backwards, Team A going backwards into the forward 50 doesn't create an inside 50 for the opposition. Until the opposition get involved. So until the opposition have a tackle or a spoil or the ball goes out of mm. bounds and the stoppage, that's when we'll create an inside 50. So, again, it's probably one of those misleading stats in inside 50. If you look at, at a stats column and you see inside 50s, you're probably picturing a guy getting the ball in the midfield and handballing or kicking it over the, the blue or red line for the 50-metre line. 90% of inside 50s are that. But, again, you can have an inside 50 tackling someone 10 metres out from goal because that was the first time your team has sort of got involved in the play. So impossible to uh, score a goal without an inside 50 because we'll give you an inside 50 before your first possession. So if a team goes backwards, um, say St Kilda kicks backwards and Richmond take a mark inside 50, it'll be Richmond inside, Richmond mark. So we'll make sure that mark inside 50 is a forward 50 What if the defender runs all the way back to the goal line and then handballs the ball into the goal square it won't be an inside 50 until you kick it through right correct so and the, and the only other one to is the player that touches it yes yeah, so there's a few there'll be a few team inside 50s across the year and they're usually because the boundary umpire has thrown it from one zone and no one's touched it and it's crossed the line and now we're in the midfield it's just like well no one deserves that yeah. rebound 50 but you can <laughs> as i said an inside 50 isn't necessarily you crossing the line it's you just yeah. creating that first no, that opportunity so you could be like 50, Fraser so. Gehring, who doesn't leave the goal square, and get an inside fifty if you just possess the ball. If if the opposition takes it all the way back to yeah. you, and you'll, you have a tackle or a spoil or something inside the forward fifty. So yeah, okay. I see the I see the inside fifty stat when I train people. I, I say it's, it's a bookmark. All it's telling us is what was in the midfield and what was in the full and what was in your forward line from that point onwards. So it's not always about yeah generating it, the ball from the midfield to the forward fifty. It's about okay. The balls, you know, bounce backwards here, and you've tackled, you've laid a tackle to create a ball up in the forward fifty. That's the inside fifty there. So, no, you can't have a goal without an inside fifty. But you can, again, another one you can have. You can have two behinds from one inside fifty. So obviously, yeah. if the opposition doesn't quite rebound from a kick in, so you can have a start of the game where someone's got three scores and one inside fifty, and you think the stats are broken. It's like, well, no, the other team well, just well, hasn't been to, able to rebound. To that question, can you have a, can you have a, a behind? Without an inside fifty, if they take it all the way no, back, no, that's under that's where you can only again. That's the plain assumption of you can't score without the ball being in your forward fifty. So if you'd never get involved in the play and the opposition ends up rushing it through, 
the stat before the rush will just be a team in. It'll be Carlton inside 50, mm. Carlton rush behind. Again, it's just that the thing is of if it's scored, it's an awful lot. <laughs> I don't, exactly, I don't think I don't think we've ever had it, but it'd be one of those ones of like it's ended up scoring for you. So surely the ball was inside your forward fifty yeah. if it's gone all the way through for your score. Fair enough. Uh, there's another question here, but we might actually hold this because we're going to do the one uh, or the telling stat from every game, and this is actually from the first game, so the Thursday night one. The question is, which game has had the fewest goal assists this year, as in direct goal assists? Swans versus Saints had a combined seven from twenty-one goals. Uh, and the comp average sort of at that point to that Thursday night was 17.2 assists for 24 goals. So it was well below. Is that the lowest we've seen this year? Very yeah, lowest seen. this year, uh, equal lowest since 2018. So good good spotting there um, from the 20 years. But yeah, 33% of goals were assisted on the night. Um, and I think, yeah, just about 38% of scores, which is about the fifth lowest in the last few years. So, and so yeah. how does that happen? Is that just uh, at, at throw up, someone takes it from the ruck and kicks a goal? And that's yeah, an so goal? probably the easiest way to explain it is what is an assisted goal. So to, to have an assisted goal, you've got to either, you've received a handball, you've taken an uncontested mark or a lead mark or a one-on-one mark that your teammate has got you uh, the ball from. So... Yeah, correct. And again, a hit out to a to a midfielder who kicks a goal, that'll be an assisted goal for the Ruckman. But usually it's the ground level ball. So anything what that if you... they shark it? Uh, no, so there is no opposition assist. We, it used to be an old stat. We used to have opposition goal assists, but this sort of oh, didn't really stat. mean too much when there were so many different ways to concede a goal. But yeah, no, you won't get an opposition assist. So if you shark it, that'll be an unassisted goal. Um, and again, but most of the unassisted goals is the ball gets kicked forward, a spoil happens, someone crumbs it and kicks a goal. Basically, any loose ball get or hard ball get would be unassisted. So it was a scrappy game, obviously. So that yeah. that explains, I guess, kind of why there was there was no link-up chains and really sexy running goals where there's a lot of handball assists. How about a yep. free kick? If if I depend again, depending yeah. if the free kick, and again, it's that's one where it's a little bit subjective. Kick to a leading player and he shoved in the back. We'll give the assist. We'll say, yeah, the kicker, you know, the guy would have marked it. Yeah. The ball sails 10 metres over someone's head who gets hit in the head and we sort of look at the kick going, nah, that kick was missing him. It's it's not an assist. So again, it's a little bit subjective if the, if the disposal's on target. Have there ever been any games where every single goal has been assisted? Yeah, just one. Uh, I only went back, I think I went back about the last 12 or 13 years. There was a game in uh, around 17 or 2000. 2017-2019 was uh, Hawthorne against Frio. There was 21 goals kicked for the game and every single one was assisted. So I need to go back and watch that. But yeah, see, it's a, you'd expect nice, open, Hawthorne, free-flowing Frio. forward Classic lines. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, Western Bulldogs and Port Adelaide on Friday night. We talked about this. Power. Ten in a row, Jake. Cruising. Cruising. Are you a believer in the power? I've always been a believer in the oh, power. Oh, come off it. You have not. I've always been a big Kenny fan, always been a believer in the power. Mate, you were saying that right. Me, me and Christian were talking <laughs> a, a couple of years ago about Zach Butters winning the Brown North Smith and Premiership in the one year. This is this is the year it could happen. I'm telling you. Um, spoiler alert. My six points column is coming out Wednesday as per usual, and um, I'm giving a nod to Christian. It was one of the great calls, albeit 12 months early. But that is like... That's... You basically predicted the equivalent of the Dusty 2017 season, which for Dusty, it was, look, that's that's just an outrageous um, prediction. For Butters, who at that point had played about 40 games or something, um, yeah, crazy. I mean, it's what he's doing is is just remarkable yeah. for his size as well. Mm. Uh, how'd they do it, Christian? They they look like they were pretty direct with their ball use and, and just hammered the ball forward. Yeah, and it, they played in gather around these two teams in a, in a wet night, and it was almost the same story. It, it was wet football. Bulldogs just kept handballing the ball and sort of got themselves in trouble across the night, and I thought they might change it up um, this week at Marvel. But yeah, again, support was so direct. So they had the best retention rate of anyone from the... Uh, Oh, sorry, they had a lower retention rate than the Bulldogs. So the Bulldogs had a really high retention rate from the disposal. So when they were disposing of the ball, they were hitting targets, but they were sort of averaging 14 metres per disposal, which was 17th for the round. Port, less retention rate, but 18 and a half uh, metres per disposal, which is four and a half metres more across, you know, so, so yeah, yeah. 70 or 80 odd disposals less. Um, so again, they were just, they were a lot more directing and getting the ball and moving it forward, which is what they've been all year. Um, so as I said, they had 70 fewer disposals port, but 269 more metres gained. Um, it's I think that's the second biggest metres gain differential with at least 70 fewer disposals. Mm. And it was the biggest the biggest differential was port a few weeks ago. So port have been doing that to teams. They're, they're happy for the other team to overpossess the ball. When they get it, they're going straight to goal. Interesting. Uh, we talk about noticeable styles. Uh, Saturday, Hawthorne upset Brisbane. Really interesting game because uh, the Hawks were 
relentless in their ball movement. Uh, and we talk about in previous years how uh, Richmond was the king Richmond. of handball meters gained. But it was definitely Hawthorne who were running in waves, handballing and, and gaining territory that way. And the stats definitely back this up. But what I found interesting was James Sicily after the match was um, was asked about that, saying, you know, is this, a, is this a thing that you guys have worked on over the summer? He said, not really. Uh, it's actually something that's just kind of worked its, itself out throughout the season. Um, but they really are doing this noticeable handball meters gain thing. Yeah, and no, again, I think it's he's probably right in terms of we knew Hawthorne were going to be just a high link-up team. They're very high uncontested uncontested possession team and that's what Sam Mitchell's bringing to the forefront so, is I don't that, think it's a surprise that Sam Mitchell is now the coach and that Hawthorne seems to be playing a bit more yeah, the it, way in which he, it, he it's very open footy and it, it is it, it's again it's um, it's well structured for a young team you don't want your young team to have to go into clearances and contest all game long and get smashed in that so they're, they're using their speed and they're using the outside so whether they designed to do that by foot or hand I think that's what he's talking about they probably didn't you know uh Directly aim to have it all by handball, but they are definitely a higher possessing and, and sort of a team that uses the space really well. So, again, from the weekend, Brisbane Lions finished with the highest kick to handball ratio of any team, so they kicked the ball more often than the handball. And Hawthorne was at the other end of the table at 18th for kick, and, kick to handball ratio. So, again, Hawthorne were just flowing open and keeping the game open and, and moving it by hand. I think they were plus uh, 39 points from turnovers, so that's the open part of the game. They were negative two from clearances. So any any time the ball got into a contest and a stoppage, Brisbane had the upper hand. Brisbane was able to score from clearances, win a bit of the contest, but ball movement Hawthorne were all over them. I think Brisbane finished with 42 inside 50s for the game as well. So Hawthorne just, not only did they dominate the ball movement, but Brisbane just really struggled to move the ball end-to-end against them. I think it says more about the Hawks, to be honest, than Brisbane. I think we learn a bit more about Hawthorne, and I think they've been, their last month has been really solid. Yeah, yep. and again, I mean, Brisbane at the G, you, you've got to say, it. they're 1-13 there since 2015, yeah. and, and we've spoken about it on Gross. the pod. There's no there's no clear-cut number. When I run the numbers, it's not like, oh, they all of a sudden, they can't do X at yeah. the MCG. There's always something that, that sort of slowly drops off. last week. I mean... But I think just, yeah, that, that Hawthorne, the ability to use that space and, and go wide and, and, and avoid stoppages against Brisbane, that's what yeah. sort of hurt and them. You gotta, and as you said, you got to play to your strengths. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've got to keep whipping through these. Crows and the Eagles, we did talk a little bit about before, but um, as we said, Taylor Walker just unbelievable. And then you look at the other side and the Eagles just can't get anything going Terrible. in their front half. Yeah, I think they had three forward half, forward 50 marks, which is really low, but they only had 10 forward half marks. So again, your forward half is anywhere up until the centre circle. So your forward half can, for be, game. can be one metre in front of the forward circle out near the interchange gate or something. They only had 10 uh, forward half marks for the game. So just that, yeah, that, there's a lot of numbers that stink about that one, but there's that ability just to able to just find the ball up forward and have, you know, take a mark and have some time to find that next, op- that next option. They never had that at, at that time. We've uh, sung the praises of Frio in the past sort of five or six weeks oh, and yeah. their ability to start to start scoring. Uh, Jake's never been a believer. That's fine. Uh, but they were really undone uh, on Saturday night. Conditions obviously probably didn't suit uh, the way that they wanted to play. Probably suited Richmond a little bit more, but they just weren't able to transition the ball from their back half. Yeah, and even if you look at the, the conditions, I think Richmond was still... Uh, 14 or 15% of their back 50 chains and in their forward 50, which is slightly below comp average, but okay. Frio had one from uh, 40 odds, so it was a, a 2% success rate, which is the lowest in any game this year. So they just weren't able to move the ball from one end to the other at all across the game. And Richmond, I think, ended up with scoring about five goals from uh, attacking midfield intercepts. So again, sort of stifling that Frio ball movement coming out of that back line and then kicking it straight back over their head for goal. So yeah, just, just stuck in their back half all night, Frio. Uh, the Giants managed to move the ball pretty well inside their 50. We talk about, uh, well, record numbers, but they are able to just pummel it in there at their will at the moment. Yeah, no, and I had a look at after their Richmond game. I thought it might have been a bit of McWalter um, had done that, that Richmond were playing probably sort of they, their forward 50 efficiency Richmond under McWalter had been really good for two weeks. So I thought they were sort of flooding back, letting teams have a high inside 50 count and then trying to go forward to a more open forward line. Uh, but again, GWS played them and they had 70 inside 50. So I thought, oh, gee, that's a high number, but I think Richmond conceded a lot. But they've backed it up with 63 this week. So their ability, and again, they're a high handball meters gain team, their ability to move the ball and sort of start to dominate that forward territory is, is a really, really good sign for them the last two or three weeks of, uh, as I said, structure and ball movements are standing up really well for them. Uh, blues and the Bombers. Pretty grim stuff, Jake. You know, the From, Blues uh, haven't kicked, hit 60 points in six weeks. Yeah, this is a side that many had pegged as a top four team yes. at the start of the season, myself um, included. Well, actually, we've got a clip that uh, we're gonna we're gonna play of what you said a few weeks ago. It's not what we expected. I think 
any of us from Carlton this year. Certainly not what I expected. I thought Carlton would be challenging for a top four finish. And now, you know, with the fixture coming up, top four could be completely out of the question by the bye. Um, and even finals could be could be sort of a, a coin flip. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I was pretty clear at the start of the year. I was bullish on the Blues, um, as a lot of people were. I thought top four was very much on the cards, certainly a top eight um, finish. But I think the Adelaide game gave me a little bit of concern with the way, particularly that first quarter, the way in which Carlton was using the ball um, and the way in which Adelaide just completely destroyed them through the middle and into the forward line. So from there, I think West the West Coast game sort of gave Carlton a little bit of... Uh, False hope? Of, yeah, I think so. Um, to win by 100 points, we've obviously seen, obviously seen a, uh, several other teams do that uh, to the Eagles since then. Um, and just looking at the fixture at that point, the next six weeks, it was like, is Carlton going to start favourite in any game? And I think they may have started favourite just against Sydney and Essendon, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but it, there was certainly no game where you went in thinking, oh, Carlton should and will win. And they haven't. And they mm. haven't won since. And as I said, they've, they've, they've gone 59, 57, 51, 44, and 52. And as you, as you said a few weeks ago, top four is now definitely out of the question. Top four is out of the question. Finals top eight. Is uh, it, done. It's done. It's done. It's season over. and it's So at the bye and it's season over. Uh, just how bad were they? Yeah, it was again, the tackle count was a big one for me. Um, you talk about the West Coast game, and that was one thing I was trying to hang my hat on. They had 90-odd tackles against West Coast. So they dominated the possession, kicked all those goals, but they were just tackling. And I was mm. like, well, that's the one thing. If you're playing West Coast, you don't want to take an easy night, so go in and let's just tackle them hard. So it seemed like that was a tick. They had their fewest tackles, I think, in 15 years on the night against Essendon. They finished, yeah, 32, 32, I think they had for the game. Essendon had 19 in their forward 50 alone. So they they only had, and again, Essendon only had 41 entries for the night. So Carlton were, and again, because of the first half, territory belonged to Carlton in that first half. Um, But yeah, Essendon was was really low inside 50 count, 41 inside 50s. It's the fewest for a winning side this season. But they also had 19 tackles in there, so which is a really high rate. I think it's about the eighth or ninth highest ratio for um, to have 45 or fewer inside 50s. To have yeah, just that that ultimate pressure when they did get it in there, they're either going to score mm. or if they did turn the ball over to Carlton, Carlton were under pressure and just getting tackled eight, straight away. Eight Carlton players didn't lay a tackle. I think 13 laid one or zero. Yeah, yeah, pretty <sighs> dire. But uh, credit to the Bombers, um, looking okay. They are. Um, and and it wasn't a game where they needed Zach Merritt to produce something no, he spectacular. Was he was Peter so- Wright comes in, straightens up the forward line a bit. Not convinced by Wiedemann, but I think that what Wright can offer them, uh, Langford when he's forward, I think they've got a decent Langford's mix a in nice that forward. nice second or third option. And, yeah. and you're right about Peter, Peter right? He's come in <laughs> and um, you know first game of the season, took his chances. It was the complete opposite to, to up the other other end where um, you know Harry Mackay just looks totally out of sorts. I know we've spoken about this and he just is lacking all confidence. Charlie Kerner, usually usually a lot more accurate than that, but he had a bit of a wayward wayward uh, game, particularly in the first half. Um, yeah, look, they they certainly got more of a heartbeat than Carlton. That's for sure. And King's birthday, Dees, very impressive defensively. Uh, eight eighteen is probably not going to win you too many games if, was you, it a, if you're not careful. But was it a good game? Did you enjoy uh, that game? Yeah, it was yeah. fine. It was low scoring, but everyone tells me low scoring is no, crap. Two two good teams going at it can produce those kind of games, and I find it was fine. I think the scoreboard flattered Collingwood significantly in terms uh, of the, mar- the margin. Yeah. I mean, they shouldn't have. And the they last, shouldn't have had it. The tw- last twenty five seconds. Four points. The fact Jeez. that they could have won that that game, it would have been a travesty. Yeah. Uh, what did the stats say? Yeah, you're right about Melbourne's defence. So usually, again, when you when you look at a team's defence, there's usually two ways you choose to defend. Well, you know, there's probably more than two ways, but usually you can be a high forward half defending team and try to create a lot of forward half intercepts um, and and try to keep the ball in your in your forward line. Uh, usually, teams that do that they do get scored against once the opposition does go end to end and gets the end gets it into their forward fifty. But Melbourne were able to sort of dominate both areas, so they were the hardest team to score against inside fifty for the round. So Collingwood couldn't score once they got it in there. But they also ranked number one for the round for forward half intercept. So they had all their guys stacked up, didn't let Collingwood get it out of the back line. Usually, as I said, you usually you're risking that thing of, okay, if they do get it out, they're most likely to score, but we'll mm. just keep turning it over. Even if Collingwood did go end-to-end, the, the back six was holding up as well. So, uh, yeah, to be, to be number one in your forward half defence and sort of your back 50 defence in one week is a really good record. What do we make of the uh, little interaction at the end of the game between Mason Cox and Christian Have we heard, have we heard anything more about that? I haven't... 
Yeah, I, I saw it and thought, mm. oh, there's got to be more to that. Very it's unusual. You very see it, it was see that in, very in American. Way. Not that I want to lump Coxie in because he's an Australian uh, I mean, citizen I, these I, days. But I would say you see that. You probably would see that more in American more sports. More giant, as they I, say. I, you don't like. I know, there's the Miller Miller Zorko yeah. sort of. He did. He, there was a Melbourne player that came up and he did shake hands with another. So he wasn't completely just off the rails. Man, he was clearly just. It was Petrarca. something about Petrarca. Yeah, yeah so. it was those two were sort of going at each other. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, there was Coxie a, having a go at Petrarca's cooking or something. The, yeah, I saw like a few, you know, a few silly theories that people had, um, which gave me a good laugh. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, actually, when I was watching, I thought, gee, you don't often see that at the end of a game. Mm. Usually, uh, it's the complete opposite. Yeah, it's uh, well. Uh, who's who's your premiership favourite? Still the Pies? Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah, I wrote three weeks ago that it was Melbourne still. Um, for them to win that game, I know you know no Clayton Oliver, maybe their best player, um, and you could say that you know Degoe the Pies were missing Degoe and Elliot and a couple of others. But I, I still think Melbourne. I just trust Melbourne a little bit more, and I, I should trust defensively. But, and that's um, why that's why I'm being on Melbourne. And people always, you know, you want to look at Melbourne. They do struggle up forward. They're not a high scoring team. But it's like but what, they don't need to but, be. But what Melbourne do each week is they limit their opposite. They're the greatest team at actually going against an opposition. And going, you do that well. We'll just we'll yeah. we'll, we'll pick that up today. So against Carlton, it was that contested possession through the midfield that was Carlton's biggest strength. Melbourne smashed him in it. Against Collingwood, it's that end to end ball movement that Collingwood have been really good at, and Melbourne just sort of took that away from him. Getting into red time of this podcast, proudly are brought to you by Subway, which means it's type f- time for is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? What? You're smiling at me. No, I'm just reading something on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> Not at you. Uh, the AFL needs more jumper swaps after games, Jake. Yes, that's justified, but not too many. I don't want to see six or seven every game, um, but I love seeing Luke Bruce and Jack Gunston Swap jerseys after the Hawthorne Brisbane game. You know, yep. two players, two of the great modern day, r- crafty, accurate forwards that I love watching play in those, in those Hawthorne teams. Um, love seeing that. Uh, great mark of respect. We saw it earlier in the year with Jack Rewalt and Tom Hawkins yep. at the MCG. Liam Jones to- and Levi Casbolt. Did that uh, tickle your fancy? I could, I could, I could l- go without that one. But I, I thought you know the two the two big key forwards, two of the best sort of key forwards of the last, you know, two of the top five of the last. 20 years I think most people would say I, I think I like seeing that every now and then I think it's nice I think it's a great mark of respect um, always a great photo opportunity um, but so I'd like to see more of it but not to the point where we're, we're seeing half a dozen exchanges every game speaking of photo opportunities there's a reason why it doesn't happen a lot more in, in footy yeah it's been uh, I think it's whether it's a written rule or not but it's been on it's been banned I know on grand final day so on grand final day you're no longer allowed to swap your jumper with the opposition and it basically goes down to the, the one main one is it's, it's a historical photo. So St Kilda's only premiership in 1966, I think one of the most famous, uh, or the photo of them holding up mm. the cup is Ian Stewart, their captain, wearing a Collingwood jumper. So I don't know if they had sponsorship <laughs> these days, but it Very also got it. for the Saints. Exactly. And, and they, they wouldn't have realised that's going to be their only premiership, you know, for, <laughs> for 50 think, years, think... and that photo is going to be used over and over again. But again, I think it got more into even now with commercialisation, things like that, that if you're the sponsor of a team and your team wins the premiership, you don't want them being up there in the other team's jersey no, with the other enough. team sponsor being plastered everywhere so you, afterwards. you, you afterwards. won't see it grand final day but yeah, yeah I'm happy with it Home yeah, I, don't, I don't want to see it um, I think that's a bit crazy yeah I never thought about that uh, Trent Cotchin plays game 300 this week Christian he's up there with Michael Voss as the best captain since 2000 uh, yeah two ways to look at it so again I'm big on a captain does a lot more than just the output on the field so obviously you hear a lot about how he changed the culture and what he did for Richmond and, and again you, you when Dimmer left three weeks ago, you heard, again, I was listening to a lot of talk back, and he changed people's lives. Just the way Richmond were able to turn themselves from a club that was just a basket case for my whole, my Nine first 30, first. 30 years of existence, I think Richmond was a basket case. Hardwick and Cochin are the two that seem to have driven that place to be one of the one of the business leaders in Australia now. Like, Richmond Football Club is up there in terms of, you know, a, a sort of a a brand name now and a strong brand name. So I think you got to give him a lot of plaudits for that. But I still go to his on-field things. I, I can't have him in the same bracket. I'd have Luke Hodge clearly up there, Chris Judd. The one for me that the, the, the number, and again, it's not all about individual awards, he's had one All-Australian, Trent mm. Cotchin. So from what he what he's done as a leader has been great, but has he been a star player? You know, he's always been Dusty been or Jack Rewald. Other people have always been the but star. He, I mean, he does so. have a brown, though. I mean, only Voss has a brown. Yeah, exactly. Hodge what doesn't have Pendlebury? a brown. Is he... Is he, is he does he rank higher than Scott Pendlebury in terms of modern-day captains? That's a good question. Um, Joel Selwood must be up there as well. Yeah. 
Nick Revolt, if we want to go back to the Revolt discussion. Yeah, see, I think I've, yeah, Salwood and Hodge are probably the two that stand out for me in terms of everything, I th- I the way they Hodge presented is, themselves. I think Hodge has to be on that same level. I think it's unfair for him not to be on that same level. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Jake, the Blues and the Bombers are showing off their 32 VFL AFL Premiership Cups, despite not having won anything of note this century, was embarrassing. Well, I don't think so. But you seem to think it is. So maybe I should let you answer this one. Oh, what? Okay, firstly, why... Why are you against history? No, no, no. Nothing wrong with history. I just think that there are better times to celebrate. And it's not when you're on a six-game losing streak. And But the the, the, the thing that I was a bit more miffed Although, by I think they were on five-game losing I'm preempting. <laughs> uh, the, so Carlton's home game. Yeah. Why did they share the limelight with you know, supposedly their most bitter rival. So that part I would I can buy into. I think that part's a little bit weird. And the fact that the Bombers were sell, was a 30-year premiership reunion Since 93. They beat the Blues. So, that, so why are they it, taking out Carlton's bit, home that's game That's a bit that? weird. That yeah. part is a bit weird. But the whole idea of having the Cups, everyone... I was surprised by how, much, how many people were like, oh, that's so lame and you haven't won anything. It's like, what are you supposed to do? Just win a premiership and then throw it in the bin and never talk about it again? Like... I think we tend to underestimate how hard it is to win a premiership. Half the people in the stadium on Sunday night would not have been born the last time one of those cups was won. So what? It doesn't matter. There's still been one. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I, I'm big on... I still feel like I, I'm happy for the cups to be presented around and I think, you know, both clubs should be proud of their 16 premierships. But to me, it, it is seen that they are trying to create a new time slot and they're trying to create this new tradition of... Carlton Essendon want to own King's Birthday Eve or something. So Which it felt was like a they're just shoving. Yeah. yeah. So yep. it's sort of like they sort of did that just to show, all right, our, this is why our clubs are the uh, on it this night, you know, with the two Premier Clubs. So I thought the timing of it wasn't great mm. because it was probably another way, but I think that's why they did it. They're just trying to get this game to be a bit more traditional than it than it really is. I think for home games, especially between two Melbourne clubs who share home grounds in particular, you need to make the occasion as hostile as possible for every home game you have and sharing the limelight like that is Can you imagine not the, on. the not Lakers on. and Celtics playing in the finals and putting all their trophies yeah, share, out there Sharing so. their banners? No, yeah. not it, on. I agree from that point of view it's a bit weird but the idea of uh, so would you have had a problem if it was just Carlton 16 premierships out there? Because uh, your problem is the fact that we haven't won anything in ages, so why are you oh, celebrating? I, I still think after five straight losses, it would be... It was just not a great look. Oh, look, they would have planned at the start of the year, and yeah. that's fine. Uh, but I just think it's just funny when you see how many cups there are. Should these are the two the, the two teams. <laughs> these are the two sides that um, have won the most in the VFL slash AFL. You know, yeah, yeah. Port Adelaide. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like haven't won one this century. It's just a bit. I I get it, but yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm happy for. Right, I, I think history 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 is history. But we've got to um, we've got to keep looking to it. I guess one more super quickly before we wrap things up. Max King's going under the radar after his delayed start to this season. Um, I don't think he's going under the radar as such. I mean, he's kicked eleven goals in the last three weeks. He's a, we all know he's a good player. I mean, I don't think that's unexpected. He's not. He's probably performing at the level we 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 thought he would perform at. And like we said about uh, Peter Wright earlier, he adds that he's that number one option for the Saints and gives them a, another different dynamic. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, footy tips on Twitter if you want to get in contact with us, questions, comments, feedback, uh, what do you think of the 32 Premiership Cups, whatever you want to talk about, really. Uh, we'll be back next week. Christian, good to speak with you. Jake, good to see you in the studio as always. To everyone at home, we'll speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.